And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of a host had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, and that a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness and of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here we go. Oh, thanks. Thanks for reading that. Um, I'm going to preach from verse 30, but it's not bad backing up to 27 just to get some context there. So uh, let's begin with the word of prayer. Uh, Father, uh, the, the pressing issue this week in our nation has been uh, the election. And Father, as close as it has been and hard to call, uh, it appears that um, that Vice President Biden will now be the president-elect. And so, Lord, um, if, if that is the case, and it seems unlikely that it'll get overturned, uh, Lord, we want to pray for him and for his cabinet and for his, uh, his, his um, administration. And Lord, we ask that you would fill um, Mr. Biden with great wisdom. Lord, would you um, just in a supernatural way overflow wisdom in him and uh, help him to see how it is that he should be leading. Lord, I pray that his uh, desire to be a, a unifying president and a president for all would not be uh, rhetoric or politics, but Lord, that might be his real heartbeat. After being in politics for so long, Lord, I pray that he would find the rhetoric and the promises and the, the um, deal-making and the shenanigans uh, just useless. And Father, that he might, in, um, in this last effort of his uh, political life, um, be the man that he says he wants to be. And so, Lord, would you grant him grace and mercy to lead this nation well, that um, as divided as we are, Lord, may you find, help him find a way to unite us and to lead us in, in, um, in the, the right way that we should be going. And uh, to that end, Lord, um, I, I want to acknowledge that um, what we don't need is more politics. More politics won't heal us. Uh, Lord, um, we can't look to the White House and expect um, our salvation to come from there. And so, Lord, what we really desire, what we're asking for, what we pray that you're beginning to stir in this nation is a revival. Um, Lord, that you would bring many people through this difficult and tumultuous time to a saving knowledge, to a, a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you pour out that faith across our land? 
Um, as, as necessary as politics are at this moment, they are not ultimate and they're not deliverable. They're not, they're not going to deliver us from our problems, but Lord, you can. And so we pray uh, for our politicians, but Lord, we pray so that the gospel might continue to flourish in America and uh, have mercy on your church where she has fallen down in these areas and, um, and re-equip her, strengthen her arms to carry forward the gospel as, as we need to. Um, Father, the other major thing that our, our nation faces is COVID-19 and, uh, and the way the pandemic is, is spreading and surging again and, and going into flu season, it might be compounded by the common flu as well. And uh, Lord, there are just so many things going on in that. Um, we know that you have uh, that virus in your hand and you can control it and send it as you will. So Lord, we pray for mercy. We pray for um, an end to this virus soon that um, measures to combat it would be found, um, more medicines to help people who contract it would be found. Uh, Lord, that um, we would take the right and wise precautions to not spread it. Um, Lord, that your church would take your second great command to love your neighbor as yourself seriously and that we would behave that way. Um, Father, I wanna pray for all the victims who have, are suffering with COVID now uh, thank you that there are many who are asymptomatic or very mild symptoms who are going to recover quickly. Lord, you did that miracle for President Trump, um, and we've heard of others who you've done that for. But Lord, I want to pray for those who are either um, going to receive it strongly or are currently suffering. And, and Lord, um, uh, Nick Carlson and his family come to mind as, as Nick has got it and he's got underlying medical conditions that are gonna make it worse, that are gonna really make it a struggle for him. Father, would you bring him healing and hope? And Father, the, the family being quarantined for 10 days, um, Lord, that'll be a challenge with little kids, especially if um, mom or dad are, are um, really hit with the, the virus hard. So would you be with that family and be a blessing to them and, and uh, deliver them soon, we pray. Have, have mercy on them. And Father, I've just learned that my, uh, my good friend from a long time ago, his uncle, uh, Harry Stevens, Henry Stevens has, has contracted it. And so I, I pray for him as well. Would you deliver him from that? He too has underlying medical conditions. And, and so that can make it worse. So Father, um, please continue to extend your mercy. Um, make your goodness to shine on the just and the unjust, your reign to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. And Lord, may we see your, your mercy. And Father, work these things together in a way that would bring you the maximum amount of glory. Lord, that through a, a divided and contentious election, through a, a pandemic, through all these problems, Lord, would you work through your church to show your glory to the world and to uh, extend your mercy to everyone. And Lord, we ask now that you'd be with us in this sermon. Uh, Father, help me to speak clearly and accurately the words of truth that you've given us, that you've entrusted to us. And so, Lord, uh, we, we invite you, we beg you to come and be with us now as we um, age your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're obviously at the end of chapter nine. And um, uh, just to kind of remind you where we've been, chapter eight was really the summation of, of Paul's major argument up to that point. And where he went with chapter eight is he, he assured us that our salvation is by faith alone, and it's secure because God foreknew us, God predestined us, God called us, God adopted us, God sanctified us. So when he gets to um, the issue of glorification, he speaks of that as already have happened. God glorified us. That's how secure we are. 
And what that left us with at, at the end of chapter nine, or at least left Paul with, was the question, well, what about Israel? Because Israel had enjoyed all of those things. And so that's what we looked at in the first part of chapter nine is um, how can we be sure that we'll be saved if Israel has largely rejected the Messiah? And, and how do we understand and process that? What do we do with that information? And so where we went in chapter nine was Paul talks about God's purpose in election that he, um, he has foreknown, he has predestined, and he has a purpose in doing that. And his purpose we found was for his greater glory, that it would show forth his glory in the world. His glory is his perfect attributes on display in the world. And so that's why he elects, that's why he chooses. And, um, and then we came to the question about hardening and how is it that God can choose some and not choose others? And, and why would he still find fault if he hasn't chose these people? How can he judge them? And that's where we were last week as Paul kind of looked at that and said, hey, God is the potter. He has authority over the lump of clay. And so the whole lump starts condemned. If he takes some of that lump and he makes it for glorious uses and others for dishonorable uses, um, that's God's choice. And, and it's all because he has mercy anyway. So where we ended last week was... Um, was Paul talked about, he quoted a couple of prophecies to explain that the Gentiles would be brought in, but only a remnant of Israel will be saved. And so that was um, the uh, verse 27 through 29 that uh, Dan read for us this morning as he's talking about uh, only this remnant of Israel will be saved and the Gentiles will be brought in. And so what we're going to look at this week is not so much um, how could um, how can we trust if, if the, the Jews have been largely rejected, if they largely rejected their Messiah? Uh, this week, what we're going to look at is really the issue of what happened. How did the Jews miss the boat? What did they do that, that led them to a, a wrong conclusion there? And uh, last week, if you remember, we talked about the struggle between the issue of God's will that he carries out his will and the human responsibility. Um, how can God say, I'm going to save who I'm going to save? I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And how can human will then function in that? And um, what we said last week is that's issue called compatibilism. And it's a bit of a mystery. We don't fully understand how God can be sovereign and humans can be responsible. But that is the consistent picture. And we're going to see a little bit more of that today. So let's take a look here at the end of, of chapter 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am lying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So he starts with, uh, what shall we say then? Now, that's in response to how that last section ended, that, that only a, a remnant would be saved and that the Gentiles would be brought in. So he, he kind of says, well, what does that mean for us? How do we understand that? And, and he answers that question by saying, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Now, that doesn't mean that the Gentiles didn't have any form of righteousness or, or were never righteous. Um, you remember uh, from chapter 2, verse 15, Paul said, um, the Gentiles, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, 
while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. So it's not saying that um, the Gentiles had no concept of any form of righteousness. They did, but it wasn't based on God's revealed word. It wasn't God's righteousness. So they, they didn't pursue righteousness. That is, they didn't pursue God's righteousness, the righteousness that was real. So here you have these Gentiles doing their own thing, um, trying to wrestle through how we understand uh, creation because they've got the law, works of the law written on their heart. They, they understand that some things are right and some things are wrong. And, and how do we get there and what do we do? So they're not pursuing God's righteousness. They're trying to figure it out in the middle. They didn't pursue it, and yet they attained it. So how, how does that happen? Well, that's what I was saying is God's sovereignty is these, these Gentiles who are largely not looking for God's righteousness get it because God called them. He drew them in. So they, they attained it. And what is that righteousness? It's a righteousness that is by faith. So that is they, they heard the gospel and they answered the gospel and they believed and the righteousness of God was transferred to them. It was put on them. And that was what we talked about earlier, the doctrine of justification. So the Gentiles who now are brought in, they were once not my people, and now they're my people. And on that, in that place, they would be called sons of the living God, is, is the prophecy that, that Paul quoted last week. Those Gentiles received that because God granted them faith, and he has given them the righteousness of Christ. It's been put on them even though they weren't seeking it, even though they were, they were trying to make the best of the world that they could. And so then it's 31, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. So there's this contrast is you have the Gentiles who aren't being after God and God goes and gets them and brings them in. And he gives them faith. He gives them the righteousness, but Israel so what did Israel miss? Why is it that many of them are not saved or not turning to their Messiah? Um, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. What is that talking about? Remember, we said law in, in Paul's writing here is very complicated and used in a number of ways. Well, I think it's pretty clear since he's applying that law that Israel is pursuing. I think it's pretty clear he's talking about the Mosaic law. And so how on earth would the law or could the law lead to righteousness? Could somebody live under the law and, and, and be born in the image of Adam, live under the law, and, and come out at the other end righteous? Um, how would that work? Well, actually, it's a little complicated, but yes, they could if they use the, word, the law right uh, lawfully, is one way Paul says it. So um, they are pursuing not the righteousness, but they're pursuing the law. There's your first issue that there's something missing, is they're not pursuing God, they're not pursuing um, uh, righteousness, they're pursuing law. And then the surprise at the end of the sentence is, you would expect it to say, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not succeed in reaching that righteousness. But look at the end of verse 31, it says, they did not succeed in reaching that law. So they pursued a law, and they never connected with it. They never followed through with what was going on in there. They didn't actually do what the law was commanding. So if you look at um, um, Galatians 3, what it says there is that the law is a guardian or a childminder or a tutor that is going to lead us to Christ. So to understand what's going on here is Israel 
has the law. They have the law of, of uh, Moses given to them. It details all kinds of things, what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you can do on this day, what you can't do on that day, how to wear your clothing, what your clothing can be made out of, um, what to do if you get a, a sore on your skin or have a bodily discharge. I mean, it gets down into the details of their life. And that was the law that they were given. The problem is Israel looked to that law and said, that's what we want. We want to, we want to connect with that law. But they didn't succeed in reaching the law. They didn't get to what the law was actually telling them to do. Um, and so when they're pursuing it and they don't reach the law, that says they've missed the boat. The, the law was not intended to give to them to say, here, here's how to be righteous, but instead was to say something else. So what else was the law trying to say? Um, well, the clue comes in verse 32. Paul says, well, they didn't reach the law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. They pursued it as if it was by works. So what he means there, what he's trying to explain to us is, imagine one of the saints from the Old Testament, and, and there's people who lived under law who are told in the New Testament are saints. For example, at uh, the Transfiguration, who's standing next to Jesus? Elijah and Moses. These are two men under the law, and I, I'm pretty sure that they weren't damned and they were standing there. These were men who were in heaven, and they came back to be with him. Um, and uh, uh, Hebrews 11 talks about a handful of people, um, Samson, uh, Japhah, uh, these folks who were under the law, uh, Gideon. So how did they get there? So how did those saints wind up arriving at a place of faith, whereas others didn't? They didn't pursue the law correctly. Uh, well, let's, let's imagine, I don't know, pick David, for example, under the law. How did he live and achieve righteousness under the law if it's not based on works, but it's based on faith? Well, he would go into the, the, the law itself, and he would see all these rules and all these regulations and all these commandments, and he would struggle to follow them. He would say, well, this, this is what God has given me to do, so I'm going to try to do this. Um, but you can't control when you have a, a boil show up on your skin. Uh, you can't control when you're with somebody and they die next to you. There's all these things that could make you disqualified or unclean that you have no control over. And so the law doesn't just say, do all these things, and that's it. A, a true and a right use of the law, the law says, if you don't do these things, then offer this sacrifice. If you wind up becoming unclean, go through this ceremony, go and, and talk to the priest and, and have him examine and, and these kinds of things. So the law not only said, here's the ideal standard that you must conform to, the law also said, and when you don't conform to it, here's what you'll do. So I think the, the most precious and glowing example of what this should lead us to, if we're using the law lawfully, is the Day of Atonement with the, uh, the two goats that would be brought in. Uh, one goat was, uh, they draw lots for the two goats, and the one that the lot fell to would be called the scapegoat. And the scapegoat would be brought forward, and the priest would lay his hands on the goat and confess the sins of Israel. And that goat would then bear the sins of Israel. And a man who was chosen would take that goat and lead it out into the desert, away from the camp, away from the city, away from the people, lead it out into the desert, and it would be gone. But that's not the full picture. That's only half of it. The other goat then would be brought in and would be sacrificed as a sin offering. And so if, 
you're under the law. If you're suffering under the law and going, I'm not perfect, I'm not making it, I'm not living according to these things. That day of atonement, you get this beautiful image that that goat is going to bear my sins away. Something is going to haul my sins away and the sacrifice is going to make me clean. And so imagine David, when he's looking at the law, he's not saying, this is terrible that I have to live like this. In the Psalms, he writes, I, I delight in the law of the Lord. So he's delighting in it because he's not counting on that law of the Lord to be his righteousness. He's not pursuing the law, he's pursuing the Lord. And so as he's pursuing the Lord, he's seeing, Lord, you've given all of these things. We understand your holiness. And, and yet you've given us these things to draw us near. But if somebody else, instead of looking at the law and saying, gee, I, I really want to know God better, they, they instead say, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm checking all the boxes. They're going to look at the law and they're going to try to follow all of those little steps and all those procedures. And they're going to work really hard to make sure they get all those things done. And the, the sacrifice is not God's mercy to them. It is, well, that's when I fall short and I, I can check this box. They're pursuing the law, not the Lord of the law. They're pursuing what the law told them to do rather than who is telling them to do it. And so that's why Paul says they pursue it not by faith, but as if it were based on works, as if the function and the point of the law was to say to the, the believer in Israel at that time, do these things and I'll accept you. And that, that wasn't the point. That wasn't what it was supposed to be doing. So then the rest of the verse he, said they, he quotes Isaiah. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am lying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So what is that stone? What is that, that stone of stumbling? Was it the law? Well, no, because there were those who pursued the law by faith and they arrived at their end. They saw who Jesus Christ was and they were delighted. What the New Testament shows repeatedly is that stone of stumbling is Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Sunday school, Dan covered that. And, and that's just one of the New Testament texts that points to this and says that's Jesus. So why does Paul cite that as the, the example to say this is how Israel got it wrong? Well, because what happened was that law was supposed to conduct them and take them to Jesus and say, you really need a savior. And these rams and these goats and these bulls, they take away this sin and that sin, but they don't take it away forever. And you have to come back again and again and again. There, there's hope for having it delivered, but this isn't doing it. This isn't taking it away. So when Jesus comes, he is the stone that's laid in Zion, but he's a rock of offense. And the Pharisees and the Jews were really offended at him when he came. He, he did something like tell a man who was lame, your sins are forgiven, take your mat and walk. And the response was, you're blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. That's a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. Jesus would say, before Abraham was, I am. And they tried to kill him for that because he was a rock of, of, uh, of offense and a stone of stumbling. They, they wouldn't let the law do to them what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to lead them to the point where God's Messiah, his deliverer, would show and they would go, that's it. That's what we've been trying to understand. That's what we've been searching for. But it's not all Israel, because remember in Jesus' birth, when we covered in the beginning of, of Luke, um, Anna and Simeon in the temple delighted to see this baby Jesus. They didn't even see his miracles. 
And they delighted in that because the Lord had revealed to them, this is the one. He will be the one who takes away the sins of his people. So that's the, that's the picture there is what happened with Israel. Well, Israel looked at the Messiah and said, we don't want that. We have this, this law and we'll continue to obey the law. And if he's not conducting himself according to the law as we think he should be, then he must be wrong, not us. And they reject him. So that was what, how Israel got it wrong. Why did they fail? And in this, this brief section, we were still wrestling with those two issues of God's sovereignty, right? The Gentiles who didn't pursue it wound up with it because God decided that he would bring to them salvation. And the Jews who did have it, so there's God's sovereignty. The, the Jews who had the law rejected it. There's human responsibility. They wouldn't let the law conduct them to what it was supposed to conduct them to. So chapter, um, chapter 10, the first four verses kind of sum up and, and, and wrap up this thought uh, before we get to the rest of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, remember how chapter 9 began. He says that... Um, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for his fellow countrymen. And so here he goes back to that. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they be saved. So in, again, that issue of God's sovereign will, his, his will that he carries out and human responsibility, it's human responsibility to believe the gospel. They didn't do it. But Paul prays that they would be saved, that God would open their hearts, that they would believe, that they would trust him. It's his heart's desire. It racks his, his, his uh, conscience that his fellow countrymen don't believe. And, and if we follow everything he said before, there's only one way they're going to be saved. There's only one way that they're going to be declared righteous, and it's not law. It's trusting in Jesus Christ. It's looking to what the Gentiles are getting and going, that's what I've been waiting for. That's what I've been searching for. Instead of twisting and distorting the law to make it something they could actually do. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 10, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's, that's startling. If you take just that first phrase, they have a zeal for God. So it wasn't that the Israelites were indifferent to God and didn't care about him. It wasn't that they hated him. They had a zeal for God. And, and, and a zeal for God is necessary. You have to have that. Um, so, for example, Revelation 3.15 and 16. Jesus is writing to the church of Laodicea, and he says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So that, that, that zeal or lack of zeal, that indifference to God, Jesus hates that. He's about to spit it out of his mouth. Um, he doesn't want that. He wants them to be warm or cold. He wants them to, to have that zeal for God. And, and just to show that that's talking about zeal, uh, a few verses later in verse 19, he says, those I love... I reprove and discipline, so be, je be zealous and repent. That's his word to the church at Laodicea. You must be zealous for God. You have to be. And in, in a couple of chapters, we're going to hear Paul tell us, let love be genuine. This is 12, beginning in verse 9. 
Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. So zeal, it, Paul is commanding us there, don't be slothful in zeal. So the, the thing is, when you look at this and you find out that the Jews who've, who've rejected Jesus had a zeal for God, you might be tempted to say, well, zeal for God must be a bad thing. Let's avoid that. No, the rest of the scriptures are going to tell us you must be zealous for God. You have to have that zeal. So why didn't it work for them? Well, because being zealous for God is necessary, but it's not sufficient. It, it's not going to meet it all the way. So listen to how Paul describes his life before he became a Christian. This is Philippians beginning uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Um, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had gained, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul is saying, even himself, he's looking at himself and saying, I had a zeal for God. So zeal is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Um, the, the Israelites had a zeal for God. So how does having a zeal for God become sufficient? Well, just continue reading. He says they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They didn't understand. They didn't have the fullness. So in other words, what they did is since they distorted the law, the purpose of the law, um, they, they changed it. They modified it so that it would look to them and say, if you do these things, you will be righteous. Then they had a zeal for God, but it wasn't according to knowledge. It had gone. It wandered off the path. It had gone the wrong way. So to have a zeal for God, and you must have a zeal for God, you have to have the right zeal, the zeal according to knowledge, the zeal according to the way that God has revealed himself. And we have a tremendous promise that, that knowledge, though it's not sufficient in itself, it is also likewise necessary. Um, we have to have this knowledge. If we don't have a knowledge of who God is, um, we can have zeal for the wrong things. Uh, we could have zeal going in the wrong way. So now, does that mean that every Jew who doesn't accept Jesus is just the worst person possible because they're pursuing their own righteousness. No, they, they have a form of it. They have a shape of it, but the, the form and the shape is supposed to be filled in with Jesus and they're, they're rejecting him. So they can be the nicest people in the world. Just this week, um, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, the, um, the chief rabbi of the UK passed away. And so many people who knew him are, are writing what a sad loss that is. I've, I've seen Rabbi Sachs a couple of times in some discussions, and he was the kind of person that if you met him, you would feel after three minutes of talking to him, he was your friend. He was just the most generous, kind, um, patient, the nicest guy. You just wanted to be friends with him. But he wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ. So he's got the form but he doesn't have the substance. It's, it's missing there. It's, it's sadly lacking in that. Um, we don't know for sure. I mean, I can, I can only hope that he had heard the gospel some, enough times that as he was approaching death, maybe he, he gave consideration to the fact that Jesus really is the Messiah, 
that maybe there was something there. I, I can only hope because like I said, he was the kind of guy you want to be friends with. So they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. So here's the thing. What do you do if you don't have a zeal for God? Um, what do you do if your zeal for God um, isn't particularly strong, especially in this, this COVID with the distance that we have to suffer through and all of that? What do you do? Well, first of all, if you don't have a zeal for God, if you've never had a zeal for God, then one of the things, if that bothers you, I urge you to do is cry out and say, Lord, stir that in me. Father, show me, I, I want to have a passion and a love and a desire for you. Um, perhaps you have the knowledge, but not the zeal. I have seen people with plenty of knowledge and a zeal, but the zeal was not according to the knowledge. And you might have seen them on the internet. Um, they're, they're the roving apologists, where if anybody says anything bad about God, they come in with their sledgehammer and they're ready to fight. And they've got all the answers and they know all the scriptures and they're ready to go at it. What's lacking in that is there's no love in it. There's no desire to win the person. There's this overarching win, desire to win the argument. And that can be really terrifying when you see people like that because they come in with the Bible as if it's a sledgehammer and they're going to beat people into submission. So they can have a, a zeal and they can have knowledge, but it's not zeal according to knowledge. They need to go together. So how can you, if you're wrestling with this, maybe you've got the knowledge and it's beginning to eclipse the zeal for God. Maybe you have a zeal that's flagging right now. It's just really hard in these trying times. How can you strengthen that zeal for God? Because you have to have it. Um, I, I think the easiest, or the, not easiest, but the most obvious way is God has given you things. And, and this is really what next week's message is going to be about is means. In other words, the methods by which or the things that will lead to. So to stir zeal in you, God has given you things. And, and even here, we get an example of what that looks like. My, brother, my heart's desire and prayer is, uh, to God is for them. So his, his desire for them is not eclipsing his desire for God. He wants God to be shown to be beautiful. And so he has a desire and he prays. So if you feel like your zeal, your, your, your love, your passion for God, your desire for who he is, is kind of falling off or feeling weak, pray. And if you don't feel like praying, pray that you would feel like praying. Pray until you pray. Pray until you feel that moment, you feel that connection with God. And it may be that God delays coming to you in that prayer, not because he's being cruel, but because he wants to draw you out. He wants to say, yes, come to me, come in deep. Don't, don't go shallow, seek after me and I will meet you. I'll be there with you. As a matter of fact, that revelation passage that I quoted, I think shows the issue that it can be strengthened. You can strengthen your zeal for God. After saying, I know your works, you're neither hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The next thing that Jesus tells the church at Laodicea is, those I love, I reprove and discipline. Maybe your zeal, your flagging zeal right now, your lacking zeal is because he's reproving and disciplining you. And so he's, his response to that is, if I'm reproving and disciplining you, be zealous and repent. And so seek out after God in prayer. The other thing that, that God has given us is, He's given us this tremendous promise that we everything we need for life and godliness, he's given to us through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory. That's 2 Peter 1.3. So that's where the knowledge part comes in. 
And that's the scriptures. If you want to know more of God, you've got to dig into the scriptures and spend time reading and chewing on it and, and pouring over it and wrestling with the tough questions. If you have a, a relationship with another person and you never speak to them, do you have a relationship with that person? You, you need to engage them. You need to speak. You need to call on God in prayer. You need to talk with God and listen to God in his word. And it's hard to do right now, but you need the church. Um, he didn't save us into isolation. He saved us into his body. And, and the body has got these portions that have to work together. They have to be combined and work and struggle together. So if you're finding yourself growing cold towards God or growing to cold towards uh, the things of God or the gospel, you need the body of Christ. And so call out, reach out to somebody, look for somebody, watch for somebody to reach out to you. Ask God to connect you with somebody who would encourage you. Um, I don't need to tell you because you're here, go to church. Um, being in church is a good thing. So if your zeal is lacking, that's what you can do. Those are some ways that you can strengthen it. And so the, um, Paul ends his, his uh, section. Um, he says, sorry, one second. I should probably, instead of using my papers, just use my Bible because um, I know where it's at there. Uh, so after he talks about them having a zeal, but not according to knowledge, verse three, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Do you remember what we said the righteousness of God was earlier? The righteousness of God is Christ's righteousness given to us. Being ignorant of that, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, I don't want Jesus' righteousness applied to me. I'll, I'll make my own, thank you very much. Um, if, if that's the approach, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, imagine Paul, the Pharisee, Paul before conversion, if he had read this sentence, what would he have thought? What would he have said? Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Do you know how much scripture I have memorized? Do you know how many, how many of these commandments I am familiar with inside and out? What do you mean I'm ignorant of the righteousness of God? The law is the righteousness of God. It's the expression of God's righteousness. And I know it inside and out. I know it all over the place. What do you mean I'm ignorant of the righteousness of God? And seeking to establish my own? I'm not trying to establish my own. I'm working in the law of God to obey that and to say, yes, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm going to do those things. And so what do you mean not submitting to the law of God or the, to God's righteousness? Look at how I live. Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised of this tribe. I, uh, I've been studying under Gamaliel. I, commit, I, I obey all of these laws. I keep these festivals. I do all these things. What do you mean I'm not submitting to the law of God? That's Paul before conversion. Paul after conversion now looks at this and says, no, wait a minute. You have distorted the purpose of the law. And so you're ignorant of the righteousness of God. The, the righteousness of God, law, the law of God expresses righteousness. It expresses his ideal of the universe. But that's not what it means to, to, be, to know the righteousness of God. That righteousness of God has to come to you externally, not through obeying the law. And if you're seeking to establish your own, you're saying, Lord, I can do this. I've got this. Um, I'll just follow the law as best as I can, and, and I will establish my own righteousness. So when I come to you, I'll say, hey, I'm good. Check me out. And therefore, you're not submitting to the righteousness of God. So here's, here's what's going on here is there's two ways 
to not submit to the righteousness of God. There is the Gentile way, which they didn't pursue the righteousness of God. They didn't have any idea of it. They didn't have special revelation. And so they just went out and did whatever. And, and when the Jews would look at them, they'd say, these are horrible people. Look at how terrible they are. They do these horrible things. They're just off being Gentiles, being Gentile-like and doing Gentile things. And they're, they're alienated from God, separated. They, they have no conception of his righteousness. They're living a debauched life. The other way that you can be ignorant of the law or the righteousness of God is to obey all the rules. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I know I don't have to go to the Old Testament for all of those rules. I understand those are done, but uh, there are things in the New Testament that, that Jesus tells us to do and to not do, and I'm going to obey every single one of them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on top of these. So uh, Jesus says, don't lust. Uh, I, I am going to fight against lust. If it, Cut off your right hand if it, if it causes you to sin. Boy, I am cutting everything off. I am doing this. Man, you better believe I'm on top of that. It says, don't lie. I, I would never tell a lie. Even if it makes me look foolish or bad or, or gets me in trouble, I will not tell a lie because I, I want to be righteous. I want to be that kind of person. The, the New Testament says, um, don't steal. Man, I, I would never steal. I tithe. I don't steal. I tithe. I give to the church. I don't just give 10%. I give 15%. I go to church every Sunday. Man, am I doing it? If, if that's what you're doing in order to establish your own righteousness, you have been ignorant of the law of the righteousness of God, and you did not submit to it. So there's the Gentile way, which is I'm going to be as rotten as I can be. And there's the Pharisee way, which is I'm going to be as good as I possibly can be. And both of them are telling God, I've got it. I'm doing it on my own. So the, the warning here is we have to have that zeal. We have to have that zeal according to knowledge. But we also have to be aware of the righteousness of God and submit to the righteousness of God and not seek to establish our own. Now, it sounds like I just said, well, then submit to the righteousness of God and live any way you want. Just, you know, go out and party and, and, and be sinful. That's absolutely misses the point. If we have submitted to the righteousness of God, we're not looking to ourselves and saying, can I be good enough? Am I going to be good enough to do these things? Instead, this is that zeal is we're looking to God and saying, Lord, I love you. I delight in you. And I want that to express itself in my life. I want to see people to see me and to see that, that because I love God, I'm, I'm walking with him in these things. So I don't steal and, and I don't tell lies and I don't lust and I don't do these things because Lord, they're an offense to you and I care more about you. So that's that idea of the zeal, according to knowledge, not, not waxing and getting soft, but actually diving into it and grabbing hold of it and saying, I want more of that. I want more of you. And so this is where Paul ends that step, that statement, verse four of chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. The word end there is telos in Greek. And telos can mean termination. You get to this point and, you, and you've, it's terminated. It can mean that. It can mean end as in the purpose of the aim of, the goal of, where it came to, and therefore it ends. Christ is the end, the telos of the law. So the law of God, expressed as it was, was intended in the old covenant to direct and guide people to Jesus Christ. It was intended to make you say, I can't do this on my own. I can't continue to offer these sacrifices over and over and over again. Lord, please take this burden away from me. 
Christ comes and he says, I have taken your burden. I've taken your sins on me and I have died and I've carried them away from you. So Christ is the end of the law. He, he brings that to its fullness. What it pictured, what it promised comes to its fullness in Jesus Christ. He is the end of the law for righteousness. Not just to say, okay, well, we're going to do away with that. So then you, you don't have to worry about those rules anymore. He says he is the end of the law so that righteousness could be yours. So he's going to follow all of those rules that you're not following. He's going to obey all of those things that you're not obeying. And he's going to do it not just externally, but from the heart. And so he is the end of the law for righteousness. It's for righteousness to who? To everybody who obeys the law? No, he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Who does everyone exclude? It includes the Gentiles. We heard about them at the beginning. They found a law or a righteousness, a righteousness of God that is by faith to everyone who believes. There are the remnant, the saved ones of Israel who look to the law, not as a means to be saved, but as a conduit to be closer to God. And so when Jesus comes, they put their faith in him. They have believed. And so that is the picture here. It, it's, a, it's a startling thing when, when we hear that the Jews had a zeal for God. I have a zeal for God. Hopefully you have a zeal for God. And yet they didn't make it. They, they, they lacked it because they hadn't had the zeal for God as much as they had the zeal for his law, his rules. And so that, that is the third way, if you will, of Christianity. It's not obedience. It's not disobedience. It's gospel. It, it's not self-righteousness. It's not no righteousness. It is a foreign righteousness given to you. So how did, how did Israel miss this? How did they, they get it wrong? Because they used the law incorrectly. They pursued the law, not the person of the law, not the God of the law. So that can be a real warning for us. Either we begin to be uh, impartial and, and indifferent to God, or we think if we just keep doing these things, he'll like us. And the reality is he wants us to be with him. So he has given us Jesus' righteousness. Now pursue him, not for your sake. Your sake has been taken care of. Pursue him for his sake for his glory, so that his purpose in election might be made known. That is the glory of God throughout the earth. And that's the promise. That's the gospel promise that we're given. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, I want to pray for all of us. I know personally um, in the, the time of isolation, when we're not having small groups as much, when we can't spend time with each other as much, Lord, I know personally it's hard to pray. It's easy to lose that love for you, to, for, for it to begin to grow cool. And Lord, so the, the mess, your message to the church at Laodicea, Lord, I pray that that would be a rebuke to me and to anybody else who might be feeling those same things. Lord, that we would be zealous and repent. And so help us, Lord, to do those things. May this message today, this promise that you've given us, that um, you will bring your righteousness to us. May that free us from law keeping and from debauchery and lead us instead to obedience from love, obedience from a heart of love. Lord, please work that in us and help us to do those things. And again, Lord, I want to ask that you would spread revival in our nation in this difficult, trying, challenging time. Uh, Lord, would you please, through your church, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and have many people come and trust in you. And Lord, we ask all of this for the praise of your glory so that your purpose in election might be made known throughout the whole world. And we ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.